Um, I don't think there's any other announcements that are pressing this morning that need to be made. So let me get right to, uh, right to Scripture this morning. And um, throughout this year, we've been focused on what it means to be the church. And we've been doing that from First and Second Timothy, because in First and Second Timothy, Paul gives Timothy instructions on how to, uh, how to order the church of Ephesus, how to put together the church of Ephesus. And so there's a tremendous wealth of instruction uh, about what the church should look like and, and who we, as God's people, are supposed to be. The last couple of weeks, we have focused on the youth and the young adults. And I'm going to do that again this morning, but I want to say... Uh, as I have before, that maybe in ways that are even more specific, this morning's message applies to everybody. It is vital that all of us hear this message this morning and put, put this message into practice. In some, there's going to be some really practical things that I'm going to encourage you with at the end of this message this morning. But, but this is, a, this is a, a, a very important message, I believe, and hopefully... Uh, hopefully will not bore you, hopefully will encourage you, and, uh, and will fix our attention on one subject. In, in this series that I've been talking to the youth, young adults, I said this up front, it's, it's me, it's who I am, it's my nature, and then it's, it's also just, I don't want to make it, I, I want you to know that I think you're smart, <laughs> okay? And so I'm not going to talk down to you. What I'm going to share with you is going to make you think, it's not, it, it, I'm not going to spoon feed it to you. You're going to have to to put some energy into paying attention this morning to, to receive something from, from this message, okay? So the last two weeks, here's what we've looked at real quickly. We've looked at uh, the subject of truth. That was two weeks ago. We said in that message that we have a crisis of truth in our country because we have a crisis of trust. We don't know who to trust anymore. We don't know who's telling us the truth anymore, right? When the talking heads speak... You don't know if they're telling you the truth, they're telling you a lie, or they're telling you a partial truth to promote their agenda, <laughs> okay? So, so you, you sit back and you go, don't know who to believe these days. We have a crisis of truth because we have a crisis of trust. By the way, we must be a truth-telling people to one another. Our character should be such that people ought to be able to trust that the words that comes out of our mouth are is truthful, Okay? We have a crisis of truth because we have a crisis of trust. And secondly, we have a crisis of truth because we're not sure what truth is anymore or even if there is such a thing as truth. There's this whole idea of relativism in the world today that says, well, it's your truth and it's my truth and who can determine what the truth is. The truth is whatever you believe it to be. There's nothing objectively true. And, and so we're, we're, we're struggling to identify truth because we don't really know even if there is such a thing as truth anymore. Last week, I spoke on the subject to you young adults and youth on motivation. It was our graduation Sunday. Encourage you to be motivated. Oh, encourage you to be motivated. Um, sorry. Uh, now I remember I'm doing this. Um, uh, so encourage you to be motivated. Uh, and the, the analogy, if, if nothing else, if you remember this imagery, you'll remember an important lesson in life for the rest of your life. 
You can't steer a ship that's becalmed. You can't steer a ship that's becalmed. You can't steer a car that's not in motion. You can turn it on and it can be sitting in your driveway, but you can't steer it until you put it in gear and start driving somewhere, okay? And I just want you to know that you don't have to have everything figured out in life in order to start moving. Just take the next step. And it's amazing how God will steer your life. Be obedient. Take the next step. Take the next step. And God will steer your life. Sometimes he's going to steer it by, I took that step and I discovered I hate the thing that I'm doing right now. And I don't want to do this again. Okay? Check. Move in a different direction. Okay? But you have to be moving for God to steer you. There's motivation needed to get us going and to have us in a place where God can steer us. So, um, uh, so that's where we've been the last couple of weeks, truth and motivation. Now, uh, let me go back to this matter of truth for just a second. Um, one of the reasons why we have such a crisis of truth is, is because there's a, a strong uh, 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 dominating philosophy in our day called postmodernism. The word that gets associated with postmodernism is relativism. Well, everything is relative. There's nothing absolute. Morality is not absolute. Everything is relative. I want to, I want to give you a, a little bit more philosophy this morning, okay? So just hang on with me for a minute. Um, uh, put up with this for a second in order to get what's coming next that's, that's actually uh, quite important, all right? Let me make this clear, because sometimes we get to this place, especially as Christians, where we're living in the world, and all we see are enemies. That's all we see. We get so defensive, right? Everything's a threat. Postmodernism, relativism, <laughs> what are we going to do? Everything becomes a threat, and we get defensive. And sometimes the tendency for us as Christians is to... Is to we, we get really negative in our communication. Everybody knows what Christians are against. But much of the world doesn't know what Christians are for. Right? And so it's important for us to not get sucked into the trap of having such a negative view of the world where everything is dark and everything is against us and everything is bad. Let me just say openly, there's a lot that's dark and there's a lot that's against us and there's a lot that's bad. Let's just settle it and deal with it. But you know what? In the end, in many ways, it's not different than any other time in the world. It's just because we have media, it's more in your face today than it's ever been. Okay? And that's just the reality of the time in which we live. So I'm not meaning to make light of it. I'm just saying this. As believers, we can't afford two things. I don't believe we can afford to get so discouraged that we check out and number two, so fearful, so discouraged that we check out. And number two, we can't afford to get so angry that all we do is fight. Neither one is going to be really super helpful to the gospel. Okay? And yet there's a way that we have to stand for truth. So let me just give you a, 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 really, quick, um, a really quick rundown on, on a little bit of philosophy. Here's the main point that, that, that I'm driving at for right now. Postmodernism, this thing that's relative, that, that, that promotes relativism, postmodernism is not all bad. It's not all bad. 
In fact, what we're going to look at in a few minutes this morning is one really good thing about postmodernism. It's got a real advantage for us as believers. And by the way, what came before postmodernism wasn't all good. There's a very important scripture, a very important verse that I think would be helpful for Christians to remember. In, in the book of Ecclesiastes, this question is posed. Why do you say that the former years are better than these years? You are not wise in so saying. We have a nostalgic, it's part of the healing process in our lives. We have a way of looking at the past through nostalgic eyes that makes everything look better. And that's a good thing, because if not, we'd probably sit around and cry, a lot of us, for a long time, right? right? We have this, but the point of it is, we have to deliberately remember that the good old days weren't really the good old days. This is not the same. I'm not saying there's not better and worse. I'm just saying that there's really no such thing as the good old days. And you can't live pining for the good old days. It's just not, not, it's not good for us, right? It's important for us to recognize with the turning of, of generational trends and philosophies, it's important that you're not one of those people that's sitting around all day long saying, ah, that young generation, they're just a mess. When I, when I, when I was their age, I was... And I want you to know that as soon as you started, everybody in that generation wasn't listening anymore. It's, a wa it's wasted breath. It's wasted energy. The truth of the matter is there are advantages and disadvantages in this generation, and there were advantages and disadvantages in your generation, whatever that is. It's just pluses and minuses because the world is fallen. There's always going to be fallenness brokenness, okay? All right, so postmodernism isn't all bad, and what came before it was not all good. What came before postmodernism? Well, not a hard thing. Postmodernism means after modernism. What came before that was modernism. So just a few things about modernism. It dominated roughly from the 1700s to the 1960s. You'll find some variations. You start looking things online. One person says these dates. Another person says these dates. There's some variation, but this is generally the ballpark. This covers the, the, the majority of it. From the 1700s to the 1960s. It's interesting because there was a lot of religiosity during this time, especially in the United States of America. Right? There, was a, there was an awakening happening in the 1700s and 1800s. And, and so there was a lot of religiosity going on. We need to understand, and I don't mean that in, in a negative way. There was a lot of it that was very real, very genuine, and very powerful, okay? But at the same time, we need to understand that there were certain things going on, and, and we, we have to come to an understanding of this. Please hear this. Not everything, see, a lot of what, when, when we read the Bible, a lot of what we read that stands out to us stands out to us because we're culturally familiar with certain things. Believe it or not, there's people in other parts of the world that read the same Bible you read and different things stand out to them because culturally they're geared to thinking a different way than you are. And we all have to work to say, what is it that God wants to say? Why? Because all of us need to have our minds renewed and I want you to know that Americans don't have an advantage in this. We need our minds renewed, 
every bit as much as people in other parts of the world need their minds to be renewed by the gospel. Right? Because why? Because we're born in a certain culture that conditions us to think certain ways, and we need to be transformed in the ways that we think. We need to be transformed in the ways that we think. So here's some of the major factors. 1700s, 1960s, science is just going full bore, man. Science is going full bore. Discoveries, the scientific method, the, 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 the scientific community is just bursting at the seams. Technologies are being developed. It's, it's crazy, right? What happens over this time period? You stop and think about how much the world has changed from now, the time we're in now, to the beginning of the 1700s. Man, it's, it's radical right? It's just science was, was booming during this time, productive, producing all kinds of explanations, discovering things. Um, people are, are moving out of, of uh, lightning and thunder being the gods are angry to, well, we understand how the clouds work and how things uh, bump into each other and friction is created and eventually the static builds up and boom, there's a lightning bolt. And we understand these things. And science is making incredible discoveries, right? The, the rise of industrialism, the rise of industrialism. And, and in fact, democracy is a huge factor in all of this. The rise of democracies is a huge factor in all of this. Uh, a, a way of viewing the proper way to do politics in the world. Okay? These are all factors that are major players in the thinking of modernism as a philosophy. So what is the thinking? Here's some of the major ideas. The major ideas of modernism are the importance of individuality. The individual matters. Now let me pause. How many of you believe the individual matters? Okay, every individual. This is part of how we hang our hats uh, on what we believe about things like abortion. Every individual, every person, from the moment they come into existence, from the moment they're conceived, is made in the image of God and is valuable in the sight of God. We believe in the, in the value of every individual. Every individual. Okay? Uh, tempted to digress too much, but I, 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 I once worked for a Jewish ins insurance salesman. We were having a conversation. He was telling me he was pro-abortion. He was telling me that he was, um, uh, as the conversation went, well, what kind of life? Well, there's an economic value to every life. I mean, end of life, some people just, we just need to let them go. We just need to let them die because they're, they're, they're too old. They're just uh, taxing the system. So I was just wondering how far he'd go, right? Oh, so abortion. Oh, the elderly. Well, what about people that are really seriously mentally handicapped? They're not there at all. Yeah, we should probably, we should, because it's, you have to understand, they're just a drain on the system. They're not even living. It'd be nice for them. It's a quality of life issue for them as well. He had all of his arguments. Why? And, and we went down the list, and, and, and he kept, yeah, those. And I just looked at him, and I said, how, how does someone with your national history not understand the mess of what you're thinking? What happens when someone comes along that says, I don't think your people are worth living? What gives you the right to determine for everybody whose life is valuable and whose life is not valuable? And that line of thinking led to the destruction of 
many people in, in your history that there's some people that are worth more than others. And it got really quiet in the car, and, and I was wondering if I'd have a job tomorrow, <laughs> right? <laughs> to his credit, he listened. He took it to heart. I don't know that it changed his thinking, right? But, but we value the individual. We value the individual. But please hear this. We don't always do community very well. As Americans, we value individuality. I got my property. Don't set foot on my property without my permission. Good fences make good neighbors, pal. Well, not really. Doors and fences might make good neighbors, but fences don't make great neighbors necessarily, right? We got all these things we've got to sort through, and, and we hear things in Scripture in certain ways because we think in certain ways. We are super individualists as Americans. That's the way we're inclined to think. Individuality, personal freedom, got my rights, got my rights. Individual freedom, I can do what I want. Self-determination is a major idea. Um, reason, logic, right? I ought to be able to figure this out. The mind is supreme. Superstition's bad. We're going to live in the realm of the mind, what we can figure out with our intelligence. And human ability, we can accomplish this. We can accomplish this. We were, we're doers. It was this belief that human beings working hard, putting their mental capacity to something, could figure out solutions to things. These are some of the basic ideas that underpinned modernism, that were the emphasis of modernism. Now, um, uh, here's the weaknesses of modernism, or at least a, a couple weaknesses of modernism. The rise of reason, and in some cases, during the Romantic period, everybody said, well, we've emphasized reason too much. We need to get to, to human emotion. That's important, too. The point of it, however, is when you're emphasizing reason and emotion, you put the human being at the center of all things. In other words, it was humanism. It was humanism. We've got this. Humans are the most important thing. I'm the most important. My individuality, how I think, how I feel. This is the most important. It was very humanistic. It was man-centered. Man becomes the center of all things and the measure of all things under modernism. The second weakness is that the emphasis on individuality and personal liberty eradicated traditional concepts of authority, including the Bible. You can't preach humanism every day, all day, and not eventually come to the conclusion that there's no authority that you answer to but your own. So even while there were awakenings happening, the philosophy and the thinking of the day that emphasized individuality so much was undermining the concepts of authority. Undermining the concept of we answer to the word of God as the authority over our lives. Why? Because I'm me, hear me roar. My reason, my emotions, my thoughts are what really matter. I have freedom. I can do what I want. It's the big I, right? It's a humanistic concept. And as a result, the, the unintended consequence is emphasis on that so much begins to erode anyone's, anyone's need for an authority over them. And so we all become super independent and we do what we want. We do what we want. All right. 
The third weakness that we need to mention here is that unfortunately modernism couldn't sustain its idealistic promise. We've got this, we're humans, we're full of potential. But World War I came along, and then when the world war to end all wars was done, World War II came right on his heels. And this was happening right around the time the shift in thinking was coming up. I don't really don't know if we've got all this. You know why? Because industrialism was having its effect. People were congregating in cities. Cities had places that were ghettos and full of blight. And everybody's going, all this stuff that we thought was going to bring us such prosperity, there's a downside to all of this. Maybe we don't have this. And all of a sudden, World War I hits, and it's like, oh, man, we human beings are such a mess. Something's wrong about what we've been thinking for a long time. Something's messed up. We're, we're not going to be as put together as we think we were, right? As we thought we were. This is, this is what's happening in the ways that, that thinking and, and people's ideas are evolving. So postmodernity steps in. Postmodernity steps in. What just happened? Uh, let me just real quickly, give me just, just five more minutes on this, and I'm going to get to the main important thing. Uh, the strengths of postmodernity. Let me give you a couple of them. The first one is that postmodernity, uh, postmodernity has a hard time. If you try to logic someone who's in, in the postmodernist way of thinking, you're not going to get very far because they're not impressed. They're not impressed with reasoned arguments. They're not impressed with logic. You look at them, you think to yourself, surely logic's got to mean something. Eh, not that much. So you, you, you debate with them, you reason with them, you, you try to build an argument, you'll be beating your head against the wall because it doesn't have that much effect on them. Right? That's not, what they're interested in is they're interested in truth that can prove itself in real life. How's that working for you? Very practical. How's that working for you? Not just rational argument. This is the idea of incarnational theology. And this is why, please hear this, this is why in our generation, it is going to be more important than ever before that Christians live in a way that attracts the world to Jesus. Because if your life isn't working, people aren't going to pay attention to a thing you have to say. If you're not living it out, they're not going to pay attention to a thing you have to say. They want to see it in life. They want to see something. If, if, listen, it's, it's one of the reasons why this missions, this missions, um, um, uh, what's the word? Uh, mission trip is so important. Why? Because if Christians aren't living it out and showing that they love people and demonstrating a care for people and putting it into practice in their lives and making sacrifices for it, the world doesn't care what we believe. They don't care. They want to see it. They want to see it. Prove it. They're jaded. They've got their arms crossed. They're saying, prove it. We're trying to convince them with our words, and they're going, nope, that's not the proof I'm looking for. I want to see your marriage. I want to see your family. I want to see you love people. I want to see you serve people. I want to see that you actually care about me. They want to see, put into practice, what we say we believe, and then you might be able to tell them about Jesus. 
But please hear this. That's not all bad. The call for us as believers to actually live out what we believe is actually a very New Testament concept. Right? That it goes something like this. Your personal freedom? Well, you can forget that. You were bought with a price. You were bought with a price. You do not have a right to hold bitterness in your heart towards your brother or your sister. That's a sin. Yeah, but I was hurt. Yeah, well, you're going to have to get over I was hurt. Because you don't have that right. There was a price paid for you that was so high that you don't have the right to hold against somebody else their sin against you when your sin debt was paid by the Lord Jesus Christ. And that kind of demand upon our lives that I must align my life with the values of the kingdom of God. I don't have a right to create my own kingdom. I must be a man or woman of God is exactly what the postmodernists are saying they're looking for. Show it to me. Show it to me. Show it to me. Um, was it, somebody tell me, because I'm, I'm not sure I'm right. Was it Gandhi who said, of all, the, of all the philosophies in the world, the one that attracts me the most is Christianity. And then he was asked the question, then why aren't you a Christian? He said, because I've never seen one yet. That's the idea here. Show me. Show me. Show me. Okay? And that's not bad. I, I really do believe this, and I believe this needs to be part of the, the guiding vision of our fellowship. It's not that we are all going to be perfect and have it all together. But it does mean this. In this day and age, the best chance you're going to have for an open door to witness to someone is they're going to see your life, they're going to see the fruit in your family, in your home, in your marriage, and in a world full of brokenness, they're going to say, I want what you have because you have it together. You're going to say to them, I don't have it together. Yeah, but you've got it more together than I do. Amen? And that demonstration is going to open doors for you. It will open doors for you. I believe this needs to be part of our passion as a church. Not to be the ones that have the perfect answers for everybody, but at least that we're able to point people north. Your life's been headed south. I've got some ways that I can at least point you north. Jesus has helped me, and here's how he's helped me. Right? That this needs to be part of our lives, but it's going to be by demonstration. It's going to be by demonstration. Incarnational theology. The second strength is this. That while it finds appeals to rational arguments problematic, postmodernists love stories. They love stories. They love story. Love story. Love images. Right? These are things that really grasp, really grip people, get their attention. Give me a good story that I can listen to. I want a story. And so with all that philosophy in the background, I want to close by mentioning five things about stories, because this is, I believe, the important thing we need to fix our attention on this morning. I want you to think about story with me. Story. That's our focus. Would you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6? I want to read verses 11 through 14. This is the, the same passage we've been in for the last two weeks. 1 Timothy 6. That was a really long introduction to this, to this text. 
Don't worry, the, the body is shorter. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good, condition, the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So notice that in this passage, Paul refers back to two stories. He refers back to two stories. One is Jesus' good confession before Pilate. Jesus' good confession before Pilate. He refers back. Do you remember? Do you remember the story of Jesus? And he doesn't use the word story. But do you remember Jesus' confession before Pilate? Right? And he reminds Timothy of that event that had taken place in the past. And, and he, and he likes it. Oh, and by the way, Timothy, here's the second story. Do you remember back there when you confessed the same good confession before many people, before many witnesses? Do you remember? Do you remember back there? You made that confession before the church? You confessed the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? Paul appeals to two stories in this passage. He points back to, Timothy, this is part of your story, and it mirrors Jesus' story. Because in the same way you made a confession, Jesus made a confession first. In other words, Timothy, you've been following a good pattern. You're following in good footsteps, right? This is what Paul is referring Timothy back to. In fact, if you put together 1 and 2 Timothy, and then you read through the book of Acts, let me just give you a real short version of Timothy's story, right? Here's Timothy's story in a nutshell. He was born of mixed parentage. In that day, it would have been considered mixed parentage. His mother was, was Jewish. His father was Greek. Two different, two different worldviews, two different approaches to life. His mother was Jewish. His father was Greek. The second part of his story that we can put together is that from the time he was young, his mother and his grandmother had instructed him in the Old Testament scriptures. He had been instructed in the Old Testament scriptures from the time he was a child. He had that base of knowledge that had come out of the Old Testament. He had that. The third thing in his story that we see is his dad is absent. We don't really know what happened to his dad. That's another part of Timothy's story that is something like Jesus' story. The last time we read about Joseph in Jesus' life is 12 years old when they're at the temple. Somewhere between Jesus' 12th birthday and the time he embarked on his public ministry, it sure looks for all the world like Joseph died. Because Joseph is gone. Mary's around, but there's no Joseph. Let me just pause here for a second. Can I ask how many of you lost a parent between the age of 12 and 30? My hand is up. There's probably not a large number. How many of you had a parent die between the age of 12 and 30? Could you raise them high? Okay. Timothy and Jesus have walked in your footsteps before you. 
You're not the first. My dad died when I was 18. Okay? So, how many of you will, will, would be willing to admit that the death of that parent is a pretty significant milestone in your life? Left a mark, right? Something that big is something that really impacts people, really has an effect on life. Um, it meant certain things for me. It meant some pretty drastic things for me. Um, in many ways, you have your story. I'm, I'm not do, I'm, I get the one to be up here speaking, so I get to give details. I'd encourage you to share how it affected your life with somebody. For me, it meant the plans for the rest of my life ceased to exist. <laughs> Why? Because my mom said I want to move from Spain back to the States. I intended to go to the University of Madrid, study there, and that was home. I was going to live there the rest of my life. And the next thing I knew, I'm six weeks before my high school graduation, and no, you're not going to be there for the rest of your life. Well, what do I do now? I have no idea. Right? And you move from one continent to another, and all your plans are gone. And you're left scratching your head, what do I do now? Um, Chris, is Chris in here? We got, well, um, he went downstairs. Uh, yes. Um, yeah, sorry. Um, Josh, if you're counseling a student in school, would you say that mid-April is a little too late to start making college plans? I mean, you're behind the eight ball, right? <laughs> okay. So you're behind the eight ball, man, right? What are you going to do? By the way, it's not like you get to focus all your attention on that because you're moving across from one continent to, to another and you got to get through your dad's death, okay? So, so there's something there that you have to pay attention to, too. These things impact people and they're part of your story. They become significant parts of your story, okay? So Timothy's dad is absent. How does that affect him? How does that change who he is for the rest of his life? All right? Here's the fourth one. Somewhere, it seems, during Paul's first missionary journey, he meets up with Timothy and he leads him to the Lord. And Paul becomes almost a kind of surrogate dad to Timothy. He calls Timothy my son. He calls him my son. Because he leads him to the Lord and then he disciples Timothy. So Paul enters into Timothy's life and begins to take on a role in Timothy's life that's pretty, pretty significant. He leads Timothy to the Lord. The fifth thing we know about Timothy's story is that Timothy was timid. He was lacking in confidence, but at the same time, everybody thought well of him. Isn't that amazing how those things work together? He's one of those people that everybody's having to tell, hey, you're a really good guy. Yeah, but I don't feel like I'm a good guy. Yeah, but you are. You have a lot to offer. Yeah, well, I don't feel like I have a lot to offer. Anybody know someone like that? Right? Hey, man, come on. You, you got some real gifts here that you could... Yeah, but I'm, I'm kind of scared. I'm too shy. I'm, and, and I don't feel so good about myself. And Yeah, but... All right, I, I got to get behind you, move you, because you got a lot that you can offer the church, and the church is going to need you. Yeah, but... And there's this, there's this battle going on that who Timothy is, part of his story is going to be the healing of Timothy's life, 
from what he is naturally to what his role in the church is going to be. And he's going to have to get over stuff in order to do that. Timothy, I'm going to put you in charge of the church of Ephesus. And don't let anyone, you timid guy, don't let anyone despise your youth. Don't let anyone despise your youth. Be an example to the believers, right? And Paul keeps calling Timothy to live up, to live above the things that would come naturally to him and that would paralyze him. That's Timothy's story. He got called into ministry. This timid, unconfident, but well-thought-of young man gets called into ministry and he gets commissioned. That is, he actually gets put into service as a young man. And then he has to sort through the issues of his life in a position of leadership. That's, that's Timothy's story in a nutshell. Okay. All right? So, this morning, youth, young adults, I want you to focus on your story. And by the way, if you don't fit in the category of youth or young adults, I want you to start thinking about your own story this morning. Real quickly, a couple things about your story. The first one is this, your story. Everyone has a story. Everybody has a story. Most people think their story is pretty ordinary. That's usually because most people haven't taken a whole lot of time to actually sit down and write out their story. Tell their story. Figure out what their story is. All right, let me run through this. We've got a lot of homeschoolers around here, so you ought to be, ought to be up your alley, you know. Here's, here's the things that make up a story, okay? The main elements of your story, there's a setting. Well, I was born and raised in central Pennsylvania. That setting immediately means some things for your life. Your life would be very different had you been born in inner city Philadelphia or in Allison Hill. Your story would be very different. I was born in central Pennsylvania in a suburban setting, right? Whatever your story is, there's a setting. There's a point of view. This one, we don't have to pay a whole lot of attention because you're telling your story. So the point of view is you're not telling the story about somebody else, you're telling the story about yourself. So it's gonna be in the first person, I, okay? I was born in, in this year, in this place, right? That's your setting, your point of view. It's your story, okay? Who are the major characters? in your story. Every story has good characters. By the way, I discovered when I was in high school that I had an, that I had an interest in books, that the main feature of the book was not an adventurous plot, but was an examination of the characters in the story. I got obsessed with a writer for a while that the action in the book, there was almost none. It was almost completely boring, except for the fact that it was fascinating reading about the thinking that was going on in a kid's mind as he was growing up in New York City. An examination, an exploration of, of the inside of someone that's just living an ordinary life. Fascinating, right? The character, who are the main people in your story? My dad, my mom, my siblings. Who are the major influences in your life? What are the, who are the characters that have been significant to you in your life? What's the theme? What's the theme? Let me just, 
a few, a few examples. For some people, it's, you read a story, right? It's like good versus evil. Or it's overcoming adversity, right? Or maybe for you, it's conquering boredom. <laughs> Nothing ever happens in my life. What's the theme? What's the theme? This one takes some work to sit down and ask yourself, really, what's my life about? What's been the big subject matter of my life up until now? Okay? Theme. I'm just going to say this one very quickly. Fifth one is tone. This one matters for this one reason. Um, if I say, boy, that book is really dark, how many of you know what I mean? Your story should not be dark. Your story might have dark elements to it. You might have had some dark experiences. But the tone of your story should not be dark. If it can't be happy, at least make it hopeful. Amen? You know why? Because you're a follower of Jesus. And he promises that he will work all things together for good in your life. So you might experience dark things, but the theme of your story is positive. When you have Jesus in your life, the theme is positive. Now, right now I want to stand up and I want to walk around. I want to get in some of your faces. And I just want to say to you, shake yourself this morning when you get out of bed and choose a positive theme for your life story because you're wallowing around in self-pity, or in discur or whatever, choose a positive theme. Get a positive theme in your head. You've got Jesus on your side. That doesn't mean you'll never have any problems, but it does mean you have hope for your life. So choose a positive theme. Well, the theme of my life is I was the least loved child in my family. Get over yourself. Okay? I'm dead serious. Get over it. I, I play that game with my kids. Oh, really? So what you think is when you came out of the womb, mom and I looked at each other and said, this is the one. <laughs> Finally, we got the one. This one right here is going to be the one we don't love as much as the others. Right? You can forget that. Choose a positive tone for your family, for, for, your, for your life story. Come on, somebody say amen. amen. Some of us adults need to choose a positive theme for our life story. I know too many adults that are living their whole lives under the cloud of a dark story. And if they just bring Jesus into it, you know what? This is the honest truth. Some people get so familiar with their dark stories, they get so comfortable with it, it would, it would rock their world so much to have to change it that they're going to stay in it until they die. And God bless them, they're going to have a hard time because of it. Right? Choose a, choose a theme. Choose the right theme. That's going to be important again in a second. Okay? Then there's the plot. And this is just nothing but the facts of your life. The facts, the events, the timeline. When I was. Right? If I'm telling you the timeline of my life, I'm going to tell you there's this event, this event, 
18, my dad died, bang, I was 21 when I got married, boom, boom, boom. There's a timeline, there's facts, there's events, and I'm going to hit them. I'm going to tell you what the major ones are, right? That's the plot of your life. That's the plot. Here's who I am. Here's the facts of my life. Here's, the import, here's another important one. Every story, every good story has a conflict in it. This is where you, you choose a good theme, that's easy for you to say. You don't have to bury your head in the sand and deny reality. There is some conflict in your life. Well, you don't understand, I'm dyslexic. From the time I was young, this has been a struggle for me in school. That's part of your conflict. That's part of your story. Listen to me. People, people relate to somebody who is willing to share their struggles with them. And it almost doesn't matter what your struggle is because everybody's struggle feels equally uncomfortable as someone else's struggle. So you don't have to be a drug addict to have a good story. You just need to have a conflict. Right? Put your finger on, this is the thing that was hardest for me. I was terrible at school, and my siblings were all great at it. Well, that's, a, that's an issue. It's going to mark your life. It's going to have some impacts. You have, a, you have a, a, a conflict. It makes you human. It makes you relatable to others. From as young as I can remember, I struggled with depression. That's your story. You might as well embrace it and admit it. This is part of who I am. I have this tendency, and it's been a battle for me as long as I can remember. Could we just get over the need to hide all of our stories? As if the things that we struggle with aren't common? Okay? This is, this is my conflict. And then there's this. Then there's the resolution. How did it work out? How have things worked out? What lessons did you learn? Okay? What lessons did you learn? All right. Not all stories are equally dramatic, but all people have one. And listen to this. And because everyone has one, most people like to share their story. If you give them a chance, most people like to tell you. Hey, can you give me in 10 minutes your life story? You better mean it. Because most people will tell you their life story. I'll give you the basics. Okay? People like to talk about themselves. We like to share our life stories. We like for somebody to know us, right? Everyone has a life story. Everyone has a life story. Not all are equally dramatic, but everyone is willing to, to share. Most people are willing to share. All right, here's the second thing about stories. No one can take your story from you. In other words, you can tell them you believe in Jesus as your savior. They can argue. But when you tell them their story, what's to argue with? They weren't there. They weren't there. There's really nothing to argue with. You, you, you have your story, and no one can take it from you. They might disagree with the conclusions you've come to. They might, well, that's a good lesson for you to learn. That's what your life taught. My life taught me something different. They might have that, but they can't deny your story. They can't deny your story. So you have a story. It's yours. And by the way, because it's your story, that's a good thing in a story-loving culture. They can't deny it. They can't deny your story. Now, I am almost done. This one here is, the most, is maybe the most important thing that I'm going to say this morning. Please hear me. Write your story. 
And I'm going to tell you, I mean something more than that. I mean something more than sit down and write your story. That's useful. But there's something way more important than writing out your story. Here's what I mean by write your story. Most of us listen to ourselves too much and don't talk to ourselves enough. You know what I mean? You, have, you wake up in the morning. This happened to me yesterday. I battled a cloud that was hanging over me yesterday. Woke up, not sure why it was there, have some ideas. But all day long I'm battling. Why? Because there's a voice that's talking to me in my head. And I'm having to fight whether or not I'll listen to it or I'll talk back to it. And sometimes I just don't feel like I have a whole lot of energy to talk back to it. It's just easier to let the voice beat me up. Does anybody in here know what I'm talking about? Please hear this. Most of us have spent too much time listening to ourselves and not enough time speaking God's truth to ourselves. A.W. Tozer wrote a book. He titled it, I Talk Back to the Devil. Most of us could start with just talking back to ourselves. Most of us would, would, would do good to start there. I'm not just going to live as a slave to every thought that crosses my mind. I gotta start talking back to myself. I've gotta tell myself the way it should be. I gotta stop just letting myself be dominated by this thing that is speaking to me, this voice, this tape recording that plays in my head and in my heart all of my life. You gotta talk back to yourself. Amen? It's vital. So that's number one. When I talk about writing your story, I'm talking about the fact that your story has an element to it that is deliberate. You're not a passive just, my story happened to me. You're an active participant in your story. You better take action in your story. It's a vital part of it. Here's number two. You don't get a chance to choose or to make up the facts of your life. My dad's death isn't a choice I have. That's a fact of life that I had no control over. You don't get to choose or make up your facts. Timothy didn't choose to be born to mixed parents or to have a dad that maybe died young. You don't get to choose certain things. Well, I'm the middle child. I'm the forgotten one. You didn't get to choose that. Right? Well, I'm the baby, so I got doted on my whole life. Yeah, and you're all, all your other siblings. Yeah, you're the special one your whole life. We just, we just, so annoying, mom and dad. Right? What the older ones don't know is that their parents did that to them when they were young, and they're just watching them do it to the younger siblings, right? But we get all these influences in our lives that come to us. You don't get to choose certain things. Listen to this. You don't get to choose or make up the, your, your own facts, but you do get to choose what you do with them. 100% you get to choose what you do with them. That is, how you interpret them, how you process them, how you develop them. You get to choose that. You know what Paul is saying to Timothy? Say, okay, let's say, let's say that 
let, let's just, let's psychoanalyze Timothy, just as a possibility. I'm not saying this is what happened. But let's say his dad died really young. He was raised by his mom and his grandmother, and he was, he was just in a certain environment his whole life. He didn't have that male figure in his life that was doing hard than pushing him and, and maybe maybe pounding on him every once in a while, toughening him up a little bit. And so he grows up, and because of all that, he's like super timid and just certain, and that's the influence in his life. And along comes a man, Paul, and starts playing a dad role in his life and starts going, Timothy, you got to get out of this rut you're in. You got to get out of this rut you're in, Timothy. You gotta, God's got to call upon your life. You got you to start pushing. You got to overcome some things. And Paul starts pushing him. These influences that God allows to come into our lives. You see, what Paul is doing is saying this. Timothy, you may have these facts in your story, but that doesn't determine who you are for the rest of your life. In other words, write your own story. You're not 18 years old and, well, my life's done. I'm cooked. This is what happened to me and this is what I am now for the rest of my life. I'm a... I'm a forgotten middle child that is just kind of insignificant and doomed to mediocrity for the rest of my life. <laughs> Choose something. Write your story. Write your own. Write your own. Amen? Amen. Write your story. Write your own story. It's such a powerful thing to understand that you have the ability to write your own story. I don't mean it independently from God, but I'm just saying this. You can look at your life, tell the, tell the facts, and then step back and say, God, what's the story that you're telling from my life with these things that I've experienced? Well, you don't understand. I was abused as a child. Tell your story. Write it. Your story is going to be a story of healing and overcoming. Write your story. Your story is going to be something like, I didn't have to live stuck in victimhood, plagued by the things that were done to me in the past. God has healed me from those things. Write your story. It's going to take some effort. You're going to have to actually do something to get there. But write your story. Write your story. Amen? Write your story. And then, fourthly, that is so important. Did I say that again? Write your story. Write your story. Okay? Next to the last one. Feature God in your story. That's where most of us go wrong. You might have a lot of nasty things in your background. Bring God into your story. Okay? Here's what God was doing in my life. Here's the lessons that I learned. Right? Here's the ways that God developed me. Listen, part of your story is going to be something like this. Lots of terrible things happened to you. Well, one of the things God taught me was to have compassion on people that experience certain things in their life. I'm one of those very compassionate people that cares about people that are struggling. Why? Because I went through a hard time. That's what God did in my life. I don't know what I would have been naturally had I not gone through the hard things that I went through. But, but given the hard things I went to, God softened my heart and made me so compassionate. I just have a burden for people that have needs. We need people in the world that have burdens for people because there's other people who just don't care. Amen? That's part of your story. When you bring God into it, you take the same set of facts and you turn it into a life message that actually means something. And means something positive, useful. Not something that leaves you stuck somewhere. 
Does that make sense? Bring God into your story. You know why? Because when you put God in your story, that becomes a bedrock of belief and trust that nobody can take from you. I see God's hand in my story. And you can say about it whatever you want, but I see God's hand in my story. You tell your story, and you put God in the middle of it. Amen? I think the best example of that in all of Scripture is Joseph. Look for God's activity and presence and instruction in your, instruction in your life. Why? You think about what Joseph experienced? He was his dad's favorite. That's a plus. That's a good thing, right? He's kind of coddled. But as a result, his brothers couldn't stand him. I have the sneaking suspicion that he probably got picked on a lot, right? Because he was not his brother's favorite. Where does that lead? Well, eventually he has some dreams. He tells his brothers, and they really don't like his dreams. He would have probably been prudent to keep them to himself. But he told the dreams. They don't like the dreams. From there, it all goes south. He goes to visit his brothers in the fields. They throw him into a pit. They're going to kill him. They sell him as a slave. He ends up as a slave in Egypt. He gets thrown into prison because he's doing so well, but he gets falsely accused of, of something immoral that he didn't do. They throw him in prison. Even in prison, he does the right thing. They, he interprets some dreams for, for some guys. They, one of them gets out of jail, and they forget about him completely. And you just look at the story and say, man, if anybody has a right to really feel like he got a raw deal in life, Joseph was it, right? But when Joseph sees his brothers, why is he so able to forgive them despite what they did? Because he looks at him and he says, you don't get to choose your facts. You meant it to me for evil. That's a fact. You can't, you can't whitewash it. That's the fact. But God meant it for good. I tell my story with God in the middle of it. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to save a lot of people alive. Do you see the power of someone telling his story? Because he could have rotted in that jail. He could have come out of that jail so bitter he wouldn't have been useful to anybody. But he comes out of it with a story that's God in the center. And he changes the world. Now, I'm not telling you you're going to change the world. I'm just going to tell you you're useful. Okay? God meant it for good. The last thing is this. You, you, you need to tell your story. Don't keep it to yourself. Don't keep it to yourself. Use wisdom. By the way, don't tell details of your story that you wouldn't want the person you're telling it to to repeat. If you don't want to repeat it, just don't tell it. Why? Because if you've got a dramatic enough story, there's some details in it that are interesting enough, people are going to tell it. No, just don't put them in that position. Now, if you get to the place where you trust them and you know they can keep a confidence, and now you're at a different level and you say, I want to tell you more of my story. I'd appreciate you just keep it between you and me. Now you can do that. Okay? So use some wisdom. Tell your story, but use some wisdom. Gauge it a little bit. Okay? The second thing is, your vulnerability, when you tell your story, if you tell your story and you include some of the sensitive parts, you, you get a little bit vulnerable with people, it invites the trust of others who may then open themselves up to you. You stay closed, usually people will stay closed with you. You open up a little bit, you'll find out people will be willing to open up with you. Okay? So you might just challenge you, maybe 
a little bit of vulnerability, practice it. Break out of that shell a little bit, share a little bit about yourself. The last thing is that your story is your testimony and it has to end up focused on the gospel. In the end, there needs to be some way for you to say, I wouldn't be who I am were it not for Jesus in my life. I was bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. He saved me. If it wasn't for him in my life, I don't know where in the world I would be. Bring Jesus into your story in a way that he's the hero at the end who saved you. And leave it as a presentation to somebody else. This is what Jesus can do in your life. Your story is important. That makes sense? Okay. Done. Here's where we're going to close. We're going to receive communion. And as we are preparing to receive communion, we're going to be singing, and our brothers are going to start, if our musicians would come back, or our brothers are going to start distributing communion. As all this is going on, I want you to be singing. I want you to be prayerfully meditating. If, if, if some of you just need to say, well, I can't sing and think at the same time, that's fine, okay? So just, just ponder. We'll sing. But here's what I want you to be thinking about. I, I mean, it's not like we're the largest church in town, but I will tell you this. You put this many in a, people in a room, and I'll guarantee you there are people in here that need to adjust their stories a little bit. There are people in this room that have some people they need to forgive. They've got some messages they need to change. they got some parts of their story that need to have Jesus brought into it. And I'm going to invite you right now to do that. Because if you don't, that thing is going to keep holding you for the rest of your life. It's going to hold you for the rest of your life. It's going to hold you back for the rest of your life. There are some things that we have to say, Lord, it's not going to fix, it's not going to change immediately. But today I determined that I'm putting a stop to this story in my life. And today I'm going to start practicing a story that puts you in the center and that brings your glory into it and allows me to heal and you to get glory. Amen? Some of you, some of you, some of us may need to have some parts of our lives reopened. They need to, there's some wounds that need to get lanced so that some antiseptic can get put in, some healing can get done, so that our life story can be more available to God for usefulness. Some of you are writing a story right now that needs to change. You're currently writing a story. You're going down a road that needs to change. And you can't just sit there and passively hope it changes. You're going to have to take some action. I'm inviting you to do something with your story today. Because listen to this. Because we're about to receive communion. And the old, old story is that there was one who left all of his privileges in heaven. He was God and had it all. And he emptied himself and he took upon himself the form of a man. And he was tempted in every way like you are. And he lost his dad when he was young. And his brothers didn't believe in him. And the religious leaders didn't like him. And he went about doing good to all the people. And after a life of doing good, they hung him on a cross. And he died there for you because he loved you. That's his story, and it's intertwined with your story. And I just invite you as you receive communion to put your story before the Lord Jesus and say, today, I'm going to put the cross at the center of my story.
no me anymore. The cross goes at the center of my story. Amen? So you do with that what you need to. Sing with me. Take some time to reflect. We're going to receive communion. Sing with me as the... As our